Part eleven of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.B. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Numa, Part One. There is likewise a vigorous dispute about the time at which King Numa lived, although from the beginning down to him the genealogies seem to be made out accurately. But a certain Clodius, in a book entitled An Examination of Chronology, insists that the ancient records were lost when the city was sacked by the Gauls, and that those which are now exhibited as such were forged, their compilers wishing to gratify the pride of certain persons by inserting their names among the first families and the most illustrious houses, where they had no cause to appear. Accordingly, when it is said that Numa was an intimate friend of Pythagoras, some deny utterly that Numa had any Greek culture, holding either that he was naturally capable of attaining excellence by his own efforts, or that the culture of the king was due to some barbarian superior to Pythagoras. Others say that Pythagoras the philosopher lived as many as five generations after Numa, but that there was another Pythagoras, the Spartan, who was Olympic victor in the foot-race for the sixteenth Olympiad, in the third year of which Numa was made king, and that in his wanderings about Italy he made the acquaintance of Numa, and helped him arrange the government of the city, whence it came about that many Spartan customs were mingled with the Roman, as Pythagoras taught them to Numa, and at all events Numa was of Sabine descent, and the Sabines will have it that they were colonists from Lacedaemon. Chronology, however, is hard to fix, and especially that which is based on the names of victors in the Olympic Games, the list of which is said to have been published at a late period by Hippias of Elise, who had no fully authoritative basis for his work. I shall therefore begin at a convenient point, and relate the noteworthy facts which I have found in the life of Numa. For thirty-seven years now Rome had been built and Romulus had been its king, and on the fifth day of July, which day they now call the Capertine Nonus, Romulus was offering a public sacrifice outside the city at the so-called Goat's Marsh, in the presence of the Senate and most of the people. Suddenly there was a great commotion in the air, and a cloud descended upon the earth, bringing with it blasts of wind and rain. The throng of common folk were terrified and fled in all directions, but Romulus disappeared, and was never found again either alive or dead. Upon this a grievous suspicion attached itself to the patricians, and an accusing story was current among the people to the effect that they had long been weary of kingly rule, and desired to transfer the power to themselves, and had therefore made away with the king. And indeed it had been noticed for some time that he had treated them with greater harshness and arrogance. This suspicion the patricians sought to remove by ascribing divine honors to Romulus, on the ground that he was not dead, but blessed with a better lot. 
and proculus a man of eminence took oath that he had seen romulus ascending to heaven in full armor and had heard his voice commanding that he be called quirinus the city was beset with fresh disturbance and faction over the king to be appointed in his stead for the newcomers were not yet altogether blended with the original citizens but the commonality was still like a surging sea and the patricians full of jealousy towards one another on account of their different nationalities it is indeed true that it was the pleasure of all to have a king but they wrangled and quarrelled not only about the man who should be their leader but also about the tribe which should furnish him for those who had built the city with romulus at the outset thought it intolerable that the sabines after getting a share in the city and its territory should insist on ruling those who had received them into such privileges and the sabines since on the death of their king tatius they had raised no faction against romulus but suffered him to rule alone had a reasonable ground for demanding that now the ruler should come from them they would not admit that they had added themselves as inferiors to superiors but held rather that their addition had brought the strength of numbers and advanced both parties alike to the dignity of a city on these questions then they were divided into factions but in order that their factions might not produce utter confusion from the absence of all authority now that the administration of affairs was suspended it was arranged by the senators who were one hundred and fifty in number that each of them in his turn should assume the insignia of royalty make the customary sacrifices to the gods and transact public business for the space of six hours by day and six hours by night this distribution of time seemed well adapted to secure equality between the two factions and the transfer of power likely to remove all jealousy on the part of the people when they saw the same man in the course of a single day and night become king and then a private citizen again this form of government the romans call interregnum but although in this way the senators were thought to rule constitutionally and without oppression they roused suspicions and clamorous charges that they had changed the form of government to an oligarchy and were holding the state in tutelage among themselves and were unwilling to be ruled by a king therefore it was agreed by both factions that one should appoint a king from the other this was thought the best way to end their prevailing partisanship and the king thus appointed would be equally well disposed to both parties being gracious to the one as his electors and friendly to the other because of his kinship with them then as the sabines gave the romans their option in the matter it seemed to them better to have a sabine king of their own nomination than to have a roman king made king by the sabines they took counsel therefore among themselves and nominated numa pompilius from among the sabines a man who had not joined the emigrants to rome but was so universally celebrated for his virtues that when he was nominated the sabines accepted him with even greater readiness than those who had chosen him accordingly after making their decision known to the people the leading senators of both parties were sent as ambassadors to numa 
begging him to come and assume the royal power. Numa belonged to a conspicuous city of the Sabines called Curis, from which the Romans, together with the incorporated Sabines, took the joint name of Quirites. He was a son of Pompon, an illustrious man, and was the youngest of four brothers. He was born, moreover, by some divine felicity, on the very day when Rome was founded by Romulus, that is, the twenty-first day of April. By natural temperament he was inclined to the practice of every virtue, and he had subdued himself still more by discipline, endurance of hardships, and the study of wisdom. He had thus put away from himself not only the infamous passions of the soul, but also that violence and rapacity which are in such high repute among barbarians, believing that true bravery consisted in the subjugation of one's passions by reason. On this account he banished from his house all luxury and extravagance, and while citizen and stranger alike found in him a faultless judge and counsellor, he devoted his hours of privacy and leisure, not to enjoyments and money-making, but to the service of the gods, and the rational contemplation of their nature and power. In consequence, he had a great name and fame, so that Tatius, the royal colleague of Romulus at Rome, made him the husband of his only daughter, Tatia. He was not, however, so exalted by his marriage as to go to dwell with his royal father-in-law, but remained among the Sabines, ministering to his aged father. Tatia, too, preferred the quiet life which her husband led as a private citizen to the honor and fame which she had enjoyed at Rome because of her father. But she died, as we are told, in the thirteenth year after her marriage. Then Numa, forsaking the ways of city folk, determined to live for the most part in country places and to wander there alone, passing his days in groves of the gods, sacred meadows, and solitudes. This, more than anything else, gave rise to the story about his goddess. It was not, so the story ran, from any distress or aberration of spirit that he forsook the ways of men, but he had tasted the joy of more august companionship and had been honored with a celestial marriage. The goddess Egeria loved him and bestowed herself upon him, and it was his communion with her that gave him a life of blessedness and a wisdom more than human. However, that this story resembles many of the very ancient tales which the Phrygians have received and cherished concerning Attis, the Bithynians concerning Herodotus, the Arcadians concerning Endymion, and other peoples concerning other mortals that were thought to have achieved a life of blessedness in the love of the gods, is quite evident. And there is some reason in supposing that deity, who is not a lover of horses or birds, but a lover of men, should be willing to consort with men of superlative goodness, and should not dislike or disdain the company of a wise and holy man. But that an immortal god should take carnal pleasure in a mortal body and its beauty, this, surely, is hard to believe. And yet the Egyptians make a distinction here which is thought plausible, namely, that while a woman can be approached by a divine spirit and made pregnant, there is no such thing as carnal intercourse and communion between a man 
and a divinity. But they lose sight of the fact that intercourse is a reciprocal matter, and that both parties to it enter into a like communion. However, that a god should have affection for a man, and a so-called love which is based upon affection, and takes the form of solicitude for his character and his virtue, is fit and proper. And therefore it is no mistake when the ancient poets tell their tales of the love Apollo bore Forbus, Hyacinthus, and Admetus, as well as the Siconian Hippolytus also, of whom it is said that, as often as he set out to sail from Sicyon to Syra, the Pythian priestess, as though the god knew of his coming and rejoiced thereat, chanted this prophetic verse, Lo, once more doth beloved Hippolytus hither make voyage. There is a legend, too, that Pan became enamoured of Pindar and his verses, and the divine powers bestowed signal honour on Archilochus and Hesiod after their deaths, for the sake of the muses. The Delphian oracle pronounced a curse on the man who killed Archilochus, because he had slain the servant of the muses. And the same oracle told the people of Orchomenus, when a plague had fallen upon them, that the only remedy was to bring back the bones of Hesiod from the land of Nopactus to the land of Orthomenus. There is a story still well attested that Sophocles during his life was blessed with the friendship of Aesculapius, and that when he died another deity procured him fitting burial. Is it worth while, then, if we concede these instances of divine favor, to disbelieve that Zeleucus, Minos, Zoroaster, Numa, and Lycurgus, who piloted kingdoms and formulated constitutions, had frequent audience of the deity? Is it not likely, rather, that the gods are in earnest when they hold converse with such men as these, in order to instruct and advise them in the highest and best way, but use poets and warbling singers, if at all, for their own diversion? However, if any one is otherwise minded, I say with Bacchylides, broad is the way. Indeed, there is no absurdity in the other account which is given of Lycurgus and Numa and their like, namely, that since they were managing headstrong and captious multitudes, and introducing great innovations in modes of government, they pretended to get a sanction from the god, which sanction was the salvation of the very ones against whom it was contrived. But to resume the story, Numa was already completing his fortieth year when the embassy came from Rome inviting him to take the throne. The speakers were Proculus and Valesus, one or the other of whom the people was expected to choose as their king. Proculus being the favorite of the people of Romulus, and Valesus of the people of Tatius. These speakers, then, were brief, supposing that Numa would welcome his good fortune. It was, however, no slight task, but one requiring much argument and entreaty, to persuade and induce a man who had lived in peace and quiet to accept the government of a city which owed its existence and growth, in a fashion, to war. His reply, therefore, in the presence of his father and one of his kinsmen named Marcius, was as follows. 
Every change in a man's life is perilous. But when a man knows no lack, and has no fault to find with his present lot, nothing short of madness can change his purposes, and remove him from his wonted course of life, which, even though it have no other advantage, is at least fixed and secure, and therefore better than one which is all uncertain. But the lot of one who becomes your king cannot even be called uncertain, judging from the experience of Romulus, since he himself was accused of basely plotting against his colleague Tatius, and involved the patricians in the charge of having basely put their king out of the way. And yet those who bring these accusations laud Romulus as a child of the gods, and tell how he was preserved in an incredible way, and fed in a miraculous manner when he was still an infant. But I am of mortal birth, and I was nourished and trained by men whom you know. Moreover, the very traits in my disposition which are commended are far from marking a man destined to be a king, namely, my great love of retirement, my devotion to studies inconsistent with the usual activities of men, and my well-known strong and inveterate love of peace, of unwarlike occupations, and of men who come together only for the worship of the gods and for friendly intercourse, but who otherwise live by themselves as tillers of the soil or herdsmen. Whereas unto you, O Romans, whether you want them or not, Romulus has bequeathed many wars, and to make head against these the city needs a king with a warrior's experience and strength. Besides, the people has become much accustomed to war, and eager for it because of their successes, and no one is blind to their desire for growth by conquest. I should therefore become a laughing-stock if I sought to serve the gods, and taught men to honor justice and hate violence and war in a city which desires a leader of its armies rather than a king. With such words did Numa decline the kingdom. Then the Romans put forth every effort to meet his objections, and begged him not to plunge them again into faction and civil war, since there was none other on whom both parties could unite. His father also and Marcius, when the envoys had withdrawn, beset him privately, and tried to persuade him to accept so great a gift of the gods, even though, they said, thou neither desirest wealth for thyself, because thou hast enough, nor covetest the fame which comes from authority and power, because thou hast the greater fame which comes from virtue, yet consider that the work of a true king is a service rendered to God, who now rouses up and refuses to leave dormant and inactive the great righteousness which is within thee. Do not therefore avoid nor flee from this office which a wise man will regard as a field for great and noble actions, where the gods are honored with magnificent worship, and the hearts of men are easily and quickly softened and inclined towards piety through the molding influence of their ruler. This people loved Tatius, though he was a foreign prince, and they pay divine honors to the memory of Romulus. And who knows but that the people, even though victorious, is sated with war, and, now that it is glutted with triumphs and spoils, is desirous of a gentle prince, who is a friend of justice, and will lead them in the paths of order and peace. 
but if indeed they are altogether intemperate and mad in their desire for war then were it not better that thou holding the reins of government in thy hand should turn their eager course another way and that thy native city and the whole sabine nation should have in thee a bond of goodwill and friendship with a vigorous and powerful city these appeals were strengthened we are told by auspicious omens and by the zealous ardour of his fellow-citizens who when they learned of the embassy from rome begged him to return with it and assume the royal power there in order to unite and blend together the citizens numa therefore decided to yield and after sacrificing to the gods set out for rome the senate and people met him on his way filled with a wondrous love of the man women welcomed him with fitting cries of joy sacrifices were offered in the temples and joy was universal as if the city were receiving not a king but a kingdom when they were come down into the forum spurius vettius whose lot it was to be interrex at that hour called for a vote of the citizens and all voted for numa but when the insignia of royalty were brought to him he bade the people pause and said his authority must first be ratified by heaven then taking with him the augurs and priests he ascended the capital which the romans of that time called the tarpian hill there the chief of the augurs turned the veiled head of numa towards the south and he himself standing behind him and laying the right hand on his head prayed aloud and turned his eyes in all directions to observe whatever birds or other omens might be sent from the gods then an incredible silence fell upon the vast multitude in the forum who watched in eager suspense for the issue until at last auspicious birds appeared and approached the scene on the right then numa put on his royal robes and went down from the citadel to the multitude where he was received with glad cries of welcome as the most pious of men and most beloved of the gods his first measure on assuming the government was to disband the body of three hundred men that romulus always kept about his person and called celeres that is swift ones for he would not consent to distrust those who trusted him nor to reign over those who distrusted him his second measure was to add to the two priests of jupiter and mars a third priest of romulus whom he called the flamen quirinalis now before this time the romans called their priests flamines from the close-fitting piloi or caps which they wear upon their heads and which have the longer name of pilomenae as we are told there being more greek words mingled with the latin at that time than now thus also the name lena which the romans give to the priestly mantle juba says is the same as the greek lenia and that name camillus which the romans give to the boy with both parents living who attends upon the priest of jupiter is the same as that which some of the greeks give to hermes from his office of attendant end of numa part one